God, we do ask that you'd help us to show your son uh, in the pages of scripture. And we thank you that you do reveal your son to us um, always uh, in scripture. And so we anticipate his words and his presence, uh, even as we sit under the preaching of your word. So Father, we thank you. We all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, well, um, please turn to uh, the letter to uh, the Philippians. Um, I'm going to explain why we're doing Philippians just for a moment, because um, I did mention that we are jumping back into 1 Corinthians, but please get to, please flip to um, Philippians. And uh, as you guys are turning there, um, uh, ninth graders, welcome. Um, like I mentioned before, uh, we're so happy to have you guys. Um, you guys have like seriously successfully doubled our high school group. Um, it's crazy. Um, we, we graduated six seniors, but it really like doesn't matter because we just doubled and we, I mean, we just added like 24 new ninth graders into the high school ministry. Um, and so here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, uh, many of you uh, know this about me already. And if you, if you don't, um, you'll find out soon enough. Um, but I am notorious for going super long in, in my messages and like, like 45 minutes long, maybe sometimes 50 minutes long. Um, and so you guys are in the big leagues now. Um, and I'm going to be honest, um, it will probably be hard for you at first. Um, I, I am going to try to trim my messages down a little bit too, um, but I guarantee you that by the end of this calendar year, um, you will be fully acclimated and uh, be actually prepared to listen to uh, Kim's messages on Sundays. And I mean, I, obviously you guys all pay attention anyway, right, on Sundays. Um, but tonight's message is meant to be uh, really an introduction to this high school group and also in some ways um, really a preparatory message for you to think about as well as you guys head into um, the school year. Um, and so next week, like I mentioned, uh, we're going to be resuming our uh, two years worth study back in 1 Corinthians. Yes, um, we were studying 1 Corinthians for two years. Um, and, um, and next week, we'll head uh, back into uh, the, the Apostle Paul's uh, famous chapter on love. Um, and I think it'll be actually a very practical and helpful chapter um, as we begin the fall semester. But um, I, I just thought that uh, this particular passage in, in Philippians is going to be really helpful for us. And so if you guys have your Bibles, again, in Philippians, um, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. So Philippians chapter 3. Um, and we're actually not going to be studying um, all of verses 12 to 21. Um, we'll just be actually looking at verses 17 to 21. But I just want us to read verses 12 to 15, uh, 16 for some context as well. And so, um, so if you guys have your Bibles, again, I encourage you guys to pull them out. Uh, this is what um, the Apostle Paul writes um, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17 uh, to 21. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of, of God. Um, you know, when I was in eighth grade, um, which was like, like 17 years ago, um, I used to run track, 
And honestly, I, I don't really know why I did track um, because I wasn't really athletic, wasn't really that fast. Um, I must have really only done it because um, I wanted to hang out with my friends. Um, and one of the really bad habits that I picked up as a not so fast runner was that I, I often looked back behind me to make sure I had enough distance uh, between me and the runner behind me. And if any of you do or did um, cross country or track, you know that looking back was for like noobs because if you're fast, there is no need for you to look, to, to look behind you. And if you're a runner, you'll know that one of the reasons why you should never look back while running isn't only because you look like a fearful idiot, but also because wherever your eyes are looking is ultimately where you'll end up. And you know, as I kept looking over my shoulder, I often found myself veering off to the side, losing momentum and overtaking by the person behind me. In order to run well, if you were to finish well, you have to keep your eyes on the goal. If you want to finish the race well, you must look at the finish line, the consummation of what you're running toward. And this is not only true of running, but really life itself and the Christian life. If you want to run the race of life faithfully and enduringly, your eyes must be fixed and focused on the goal, the consummation of your faith. And what is that goal? That goal is Jesus Christ. You know, having graduated our seniors and as we welcome a new class of ninth graders, a question that I want really all of us to consider is, what does a healthy high school ministry look like? So maybe we'll write that question down. Like, what does a, high, a healthy high school ministry look like? What does a healthy high school ministry look like filled with a new set of ninth graders, new 10th graders, new 11th graders, new 12th graders? How would you answer that question? What do you think would be some distinctive marks and qualities of a healthy high school ministry? Now, maybe you'd say good friendships or a lack of clicks, a ton of fun events, um, maybe even new visitors coming even during quarantine, biblical preaching. What would you say defines a healthy high school ministry? While a healthy high school ministry is not less than those things, a healthy high school ministry's DNA must be centered on and looking to the ultimate goal and prize of life itself, Jesus himself. If Jesus Christ must be the personal goal of all of our individual lives, then Jesus Christ must also be the foundational and central goal of our high school ministry together. Now, obviously, I'm pretty sure none of us would disagree with this. Like, of course, Jesus must be the center of our lives in the high school ministry. Like, Pastor can talk about that all the time. But as the novelty of the, of the new school year wears off, as the school year gets busier and busier, and hopefully as things get to reopen again, I think there will be the temptation for all of us to brush Jesus aside. And for some of us, this drift has already happened. Jesus isn't the center, but just some ornament to our lives. Jesus is just something to check off our to-do list. On top of that, as we include the new ninth graders into this high school group, some of you are already thinking to yourself, I have nothing in common with these ninth graders. Like for our juniors and seniors, you're already thinking that your world and their world cannot be any more different. One group is thinking about the future and graduation and college, while the other is still trying to make sure that their voices don't crack while talking. But if Jesus really is the center of our lives in this high school group, then we are defined not so much by our, our differences, but really by one singular and overarching pursuit. Does that make sense? The reason you are here, whether you are a freshman, a sophomore, a junior, or even a senior, is to pursue and chase after Jesus Christ, not individually, but together. It isn't that our differences don't matter, but that our differences are superseded by an altogether lovelier vision and pursuit. No matter our differences, we are here to pursue and worship Jesus together, not separately, which is why we're doing Zoom like this. And if that's true, 
then we have to ask, how can we pursue Jesus better because we're together? What is so strategic about high school group that allows us to pursue Jesus in this particular and unique way? And I think the Apostle Paul's words will shed some light on answering that question. And I think his response in Philippians chapter 3 gives us some really relevant and practical answers. And so our key idea for our message, our, our passage for this evening, is that we pursue Jesus together as a high school group by three things. By following worthy examples, by fleeing from enemies of the cross, and by fixing our gaze on our Savior. And so the first is to follow worthy examples. The first point is to follow worthy examples. Take a look at verse 17 again. It says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul what it means to follow and pursue Jesus with all that you are, would you be surprised if you responded by saying, watch my life? This is exactly what he's saying. But what would you think if you came to me telling me that you were really concerned about, about your spiritual life and you asked me how to grow and mature in your love for Jesus and your love for others. And I told you, just watch my life. Just do what I do. Like watch a ton of Korean dramas, eat a bunch of pho, wear jeans and long sleeves in 85 degree weather, preach 50 minute messages. Like if I told you that, none of you would take me seriously. Not only because it's weird, but it's incredibly arrogant. Likewise, it's pretty bold for the Apostle Paul to say, hey, I want you guys all to be a bunch of mini-me's. Like, should, should the Apostle Paul get a free pass for saying that just because he's an apostle? But notice, I want you guys to notice why he's worthy of imitation. If you took a look back at verse 17, Paul says that, he's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, if you look back at verse 12, he says, not that I have attained this or am already perfect. The Apostle Paul readily admits that he was not perfect. Paul had no delusions of grandeur. And it is precisely Paul's imperfection that actually qualifies him to be someone worthy of imitation. Because even though Paul wasn't perfect, Paul demonstrates how imperfect people can still be imitated. Paul doesn't set himself as an example because he's imperfect, but because his life demonstrates how imperfect people can still pursue Jesus despite their imperfection and despite their unworthiness. He says again in verse 12, he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What makes Paul worth a look of any following is that despite his unworthiness, he still made it his aim to please Jesus. The apostle Paul is incredibly self-aware and as imperfect as he was, he knew that he was still a faithful example of what an imperfect person looks like to follow Jesus. Paul and even other people like him are God sent examples now to you of how you are to pursue Jesus. And this is why I think Paul's exhortation to follow worthy examples is incredibly relevant for us as a high school ministry. Because no one is claiming perfection in this high school group. At least I don't think they are. Many of us readily confess and admit our unworthiness and imperfection. But who among this high school group, despite their imperfection and unworthiness, are making Jesus their own? Do you follow such people? Who do you choose to imitate? And who are the individuals that you choose to follow? Whose example do you imitate and learn from? Whose feet do you sit under and learn from? Maybe to put it another way, who disciples you? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, no one disciples me. Like for many of us, we, we think of and conceive of discipleship exclusively as meeting with someone that you don't really know from church once a week at a coffee shop and you go over the book, Knowing God, and they ask you a bunch of questions about the Christian life. But is that really what discipleship is? I mean, if you think about it, what did the 12 disciples do with Jesus? 
You think they met at the corner of Starbucks in Galilee talking with Jesus about some Christian living book? No. The disciples in discipleship saw how Jesus lived, what he did, what he said, how he carried his life, what he was like under pressure. And if we look at discipleship like that, then the reality is that whether formally or not, we are all being discipled by something or someone. Whether you are aware of it or not, your heart and your life is being curated and molded by countless other voices and counsel in your life. The fact that Paul emphasizes the need for imitation demonstrates the inescapable reality of influences and how much the influence of others shape us. The reason why the book of Proverbs emphasizes the need for wise community is because wise people are not born out of a vacuum. Wise people are formed in a chosen community of wise and helpful voices and counsel. And at the same time too, similarly, foolish people also are not born out of a vacuum. Foolish people are similarly formed in a chosen community of foolish and harmful voices and counsel. Everyone in this Zoom room is sitting under the teaching and observing the life of someone else, not just me or your youth leaders. If you think about it, you guys only spend an hour and a half, maybe even less on a Friday night, and at most an hour on Sunday. What about the rest of your week? Whose voice and influence are you listening and following then? The reality is that you are privy to the counsel, to the words, to the influences of a myriad of different voices, and they're whispering into your ear, and they're, te they're telling you what is important in life, how to spend your time, what to pursue, what the center of your life is supposed to be. And the reality is that you are listening and obeying more than you realize. This will be one of the great challenges of some of you guys, some of you ninth graders entering into high school. And what's really deceptive about their words and their lifestyle is that they're not completely misleading, but only several de degrees off. In, in 1979, Air, Air New Zealand Flight 901 embarked on a scheduled Antarctic flight at eight in the morning. The, pl the flights, the, the pilot of the flight were experienced pilots, and at least initially, the flight was nothing out of the ordinary. The flight, the, the, the flight's route was, was to fly over parts of Antarctica and return to Auckland that same evening. But the thing is that the flight never returned. During its flight, it crashed face first into a mountain, Mount Erebus, killing all the 250 or so passengers aboard. And when they found the plane and retrieved the flight information and recordings, they found out that all that happened was some, that someone inputted the wrong coordinates into the plane by only two degrees, and just two degrees off. They're only off by a couple of degrees, but it led them straight into the side of the mountains. Even just a, a couple of degrees off can be deadly down the road for you. You never notice spiritual drift and apostasy immediately. You can be one or two degrees off now, but it will lead you down to your ruin later. In the same way, being led away from Jesus doesn't happen immediately. When our parents or our friends tell us that there's nothing more important to your life than grades and what school you get into, what are they subtly saying? Now, there's nothing wrong with school or education. School is obviously important, but the subtle and seductive danger is to be tempted to believe that school is ultimate. When our friends tell us that the most important thing in life is to have their approval, what are they subtly saying? It's great to have friends who like us, but their approval, again, isn't ultimate. And so if you think about it, there are, an, there are an unlimited amount of voices in your life that are vying for your attention. And whoever has the most influential voice in your life, whoever has your ear will also be the same person who will turn your heart. So who has your ear? Who are the people that you give an audience to and have vested special significance or influence in your life?
are the people that you're willing to follow worthy examples or are they unworthy examples? Let me be a bit more specific. Are the examples that you've chosen to follow in your life, in your high school life, helping you to pursue Jesus more? Are they helping you to love Jesus more? Do these examples make Jesus large in your heart and in your life, or do they diminish him and make him small and insignificant in your life? I mean, think about that for a second. Is Jesus enlarged in this conversation that you're having with a friend, or is he made insignificant and dull? What makes our high school ministry strategic is that there are four different grades in high school leaders of varying maturity all at your disposal. I mean, just think about it. In the high school ministry, there are dozens of examples of how to live the faithful Christian life at your disposal. The reason why the high school ministry exists isn't to serve your individual purposes or your specific grade, but to really form you as a community to, so that you can lean on one another. So that rather than struggling alone, we struggle together in pursuing Jesus. Ninth graders, you are in a high school ministry filled with older students and staff who, despite their faults and unworthiness, are trying to live a faithful Christian life. And the most important and interesting thing about them isn't how much they failed or how they dress or what their interests are, or what kind of GPA they have or what school they get into. The most important thing about them is how, by the grace of God, despite their failures, they are trying to make Jesus the center of their lives. And so as you get to know them in your small groups, and in fellowship, my challenge to you is to ask them what it really looks like to be a faithful teenager. Ask them what it looks like to pursue Jesus where they are. Like if you were to do ninth grade over again, 11th grader, 12th grader, how would you have done it differently? Would you, what would you have changed or prioritized instead? What does being a Christian look like as we struggle with, with school, friendships, a pandemic, and the uncertainty of a future? What does it look like to love Jesus amidst the busyness of high school and the pressure of getting into college without letting our love for him run cold? Ask these kinds of questions, ninth grader. Ninth grader, avail yourself of the examples that you have in the upperclassmen and the youth staff. And speaking of the youth staff, the staff and leaders who serve in the youth ministry are really chosen for a reason. This isn't a hot take, but I think that our leaders are some of the most gifted and humble servants that Lighthouse has to offer. They have been where you are. They have asked the same questions that you've asked. And you would be foolish to not avail yourself of the resources and tools available, available to you in these staffers. I really believe that God can nourish your soul in this very unique season of your life with the examples, examples of the upperclassmen and the youth staff available to you. Now, I not only have words for the ninth graders, I also have words for the upperclassmen as well, our 10th graders, 11th and, and 12th. I've got some words for you. While the Apostle Paul encourages us to consider what kinds of influences we're following and pursuing, implicit in his encouragement as well is the consideration of what kind of influence and example that we're setting for others and those around us. And you know, honestly, as I talk about the ninth graders, like I'm not concerned about the ninth graders. Like I'm certain that our ninth graders will be a good example to the rest of the high school group. Like they, like even today, like they showed up like at 7.15, ready to come to youth group. The high schoolers are really the ones, or these ninth graders are really the ones who come early to things and are usually the ones who stick around after small groups are over to hang out. I think the ninth graders will already be in an immense influence on our high school ministry. And so ninth graders, you are not my concern. My concern really is whether our 11th and 12th graders will really be a good example to the rest of the high school ministry. Upperclassmen historically have always set the tone of the high school ministry for better or for worse. And so upperclassmen, let me ask you a question. What tone will you set? What kind of example are you communicating to the rest of the high school ministry? Your involvement 
or even lack of involvement communicates to the rest of the high school ministry something about your priorities, who you choose to live for, and what is most important to you. With the exception of, very, of some very faithful upperclassmen, others of you just haven't shown up physically and spiritually. Like if, if there's an optional high school thing, like you guys, just, you guys just don't show up. Honestly, I think our ninth graders do a better job of showing up than some of you do. Maybe some of us don't get involved because it's too awkward to show your face or interact online. But what does that communicate to everyone else what's most important to you? That comfort and the fear of man is more important to you than being with Jesus and his family. Some of us don't get involved because we already have a group of friends that we hang out with outside of youth group already. And you know, that's great. But what does that communicate to everyone else? What's important to you? That Jesus died only for a small group of your buddies. But you know, one of the, one of the things that I was so encouraged by was when some of our high school students, when they regularly showed up for youth Bible camp. And on the last day, the, the high, some of the high school students share that, it, that were not for YBC. Some of these high school students never would have gotten the chance to interact with the junior hires and vice versa. They never would have had the chance to influence and be influenced by them. And I, you know, I was so encouraged by that. Like those are some of the moments that youth pastors live for. And so, so upperclassmen, will your presence or absence in this high school ministry influence those around you, those younger than you, to pursue Jesus and his family to a greater degree or a diminishing degree? Jesus is to be pursued together as a family, not as a small group of friends sequestered from the rest of the high school ministry. Jesus didn't save a small group of friends. Jesus saved a family, a community for himself. It is only fitting that we worship him as a family. And so ninth graders, I want to challenge you even now, be good examples to the rest of our high school group. Show up. They are supposed to, the rest of the high school group is supposed to be a good example to you, but you can also have a long lasting and helpful influence upon them. Show them what it means to be excited for youth ministry. Show them the value of fellowship as you stick around after small groups conclude. Show them what it means to be ready to, be, to humbly receive the word of God. Even as a ninth grader, you have immense influence. And so let no one despise you for your youth. That brings me to the second point, flee from enemies of the cross. The first point was to follow worthy examples. And secondly, flee from enemies of the cross. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our, but our city, I'm sorry, I'm just going to leave it there, verse 19. Well, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was so explicit to the Philippians about having good examples was because of a number of bad examples that surrounded them. Who were these bad examples? Who were these enemies that the Apostle Paul frequently told, talked about? The people that Paul was describing were dangerous opponents threatening the church of Philippi. In fact, these opponents were so dangerous that Paul, it says here, wept over the dangers that these, that these people posed to his beloved Philippian believers. And while we don't know much about these enemies, scholars have concluded that these opponents most likely fell into two main heretical camps. Okay, the first heretical camp were, were the Gnostics. Gnosticism is the Greek heresy that the physical realm is bad and evil, while the spiritual realm is good. And we obviously know that isn't true because when God created the physical world, he called it, what? Very good. But here's the practical outworking of Gnosticism. If the physical world is bad, but the spiritual realm is good, then whatever I do with my body doesn't really matter as long as, I, as, long as my soul is fine. You see what this heresy allows people to get away with? Really anything. It's pretty much doing whatever you want to do and using your theology to back it up. 
The second heretical group was the Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews who believed in Jesus the Messiah, but they, did they didn't totally believe in his sufficiency. Now, the gospel says that you are totally saved by grace through faith. You were saved completely apart from works of your own, but solely on the basis of Jesus' obedience and righteousness. But for the Judaizers, they thought, okay, yeah, that's fine and good, but you have to keep the entirety of the Mosaic law to ensure your salvation. In other words, Judaizers did not believe in a full gospel, but really a false one. The, fa the full gospel is that you are totally saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a false one says that faith in Jesus is not enough. A false gospel says that you are saved by believing and trusting in Jesus in addition to something else. Now, what does this mean? It means that you are essentially working for your salvation. Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross was not enough. And whether it was lawlessness or legalism, Paul is so distraught over these enemies because they threaten the most important truth about the Philippians, that there is no sufficient savior other than Jesus Christ himself. It's the reason why they're called enemies of the cross. These enemies fundamentally oppose the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is king and that as king, he has come to rescue you when you cannot rescue yourself. When you were in desperate need of rescue from your sin, in Jesus, God, in God, I'm sorry, God in Jesus intervened to save you. That is the good news of Jesus. And this is what was threatening the church. This is what Paul warned and was so cautious in, in warning the, the Philippians about. Paul warns the Philippians and warns us with tears in his eyes to run away, to flee from anyone or anything who would undermine and distract us from our hope and satisfaction in Jesus. Look at how the, the Apostle Paul describes what these enemies of the cross are like. He says that their end is destruction. People who treat the cross like trash will be treated like trash. They will, be, they will be discarded and destroyed in the same manner that they discard and destroy the work of the cross. Secondly, says that their God is their belly. To describe their God as their belly was such an apt way of describing what they worshiped. The thing that drove their actions and desires was, was most central to them. And it was their appetites the things that they craved, whatever they wanted to do, they did. And thirdly, Paul describes that they glory in their shame. Whatever they boast in and flaunt will eventually be their downfall. And finally, Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. Now, this is more than just what, what they're thinking about, but it's really a, a complete way of, of life. They're, they were so tunnel vision that they could not think about and look ahead to the future because they were so focused on the here and now. Now, I usually don't break down a verse like this, but I think at least for tonight's message, it's important too. Because in all four characteristics of these enemies, we probably know someone like this. And I think the reason why the Apostle Paul lists off these very specific characteristics is because he's asking us, are you following examples that threaten the cross? Is there anything or anyone in your life that according to Paul's list here is considered an enemy of the cross? Now, on a very superficial level, all of us would probably say no. Like none of us are in the haters of the cross fan club. And if, even if you're not a Christian, you're probably at least sympathetic to Christianity and not hostile toward it. But enemies of the cross are a lot more subtle than obvious hatred of the cross, like I mentioned earlier. Remember who the en original enemies of the cross were. They were people who simply led Christians away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. Consider what Jesus offers you. Far more than just a ticket out of hell, Jesus offers you himself as your ultimate source of identity, comfort, security, and trust. And the question is, what does an enemy of the cross do? An enemy of the cross, whether intentionally or not, 
will seek to distract you, lure you, sabotage and undermine, undermine your hope, identity, and security in Jesus. To put it another way, an enemy of the cross will get you to trust, hope, find your identity and security in anything other than Jesus Christ. To, to ultimately trust in yourself, to trust in ultimately your abilities, to ultimately trust in your grades, to ultimately trust in your friends and what people think about you. An enemy of the cross operates again, not obviously, but subtly. One very subtle enemy of the cross is what others think about you. Our God isn't our physical bellies, but the, but the physical eyes of others. Now you might not think of yourself as a self-centered or an arrogant person. You don't think that you talk a lot in public or really put yourself out there. You don't think that you're very flashy with your appearance, with your appearance or even your behavior. But if you were to look, look back on specific moments and instances of your life, you realize that you're acutely aware of what other people thought of you constantly. For some of you, you're willing to speak only when you're pretty sure it's not gonna make you look stupid. For others of you, what drives your fashion choices is what other people think of you. For others of you, you choose what college you want to go to, not because loving Jesus is the top priority, but because what kind of prestige it carries and how it'll make you look. Your deepest moments of anxiety are when you fear that people are going to look, think poorly of you when you make a mistake. Your greatest moments of happiness also become the greatest moments of stress when people do approve of you. They become your greatest moments of stress when you realize that what you have to do to maintain their approval and what happens if you don't. When the approval of others takes Jesus' seat in our lives, Jesus has been dethroned. But more than that, you have lost the only true source of identity, hope, and stability. Another very subtle enemy of the cross for many of you high schoolers is, our, is, is education. Education is a great gift, but it makes for a terrible master. Many of us are, are worried about the fall semester. You feel an, an enormous amount of pressure to perform academically. You don't want anything short of an A. You, you want to take as many honors and APs as possible. You want to go to this school or that school. And of course, we should work hard and diligently. But for many of us, faithfulness and stewardship don't actually have anything to do with Jesus, but really are the excuse to feed our idolatrous belly of success and education. And generally speaking, you still attend youth group and participate in corporate worship on Sundays. And you might even serve a little, except, of course, when you have projects due and midterms to study for. It isn't that we shouldn't study or get our work done, but oftentimes we sacrifice spiritual integrity for academic integrity. And so again, if you look back at your life, what was truly valued and what was truly important to you? When we diminish and devalue the sufficiency of Jesus by pursuing the approval of others, replacing a unique value on our, on our education or anything else, we end up becoming enemies of the cross ourselves. We become the hindrance to the cross. Countless other good things like sports or music or whatever are great gifts of God, but really make for terrible gods. Not one of them, as good as they are, under the umbrella of God's provision and protection, are meant to be your source of identity, security, and trust. That position is reserved for God alone because only Jesus can fulfill that role. Have you succumbed to an enemy of the cross? Do the strongest voices in your life compel you and influence you to follow Jesus more faithfully or less faithfully? Have they become an enemy of the cross? Perhaps one very tangible application is to consider the friends in your life. Do they pose a threat to your devotion and love for Jesus Christ? Do their values conflict with the values and sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ? And maybe to, to, to let's, let's, let's flip the question another way again. 
what kind of influence do you have with those around you, like I mentioned before? Are you behaving as an enemy of the cross? I don't even know what you guys do these days, but by what you think about, by what, by what you talk about, by what you do, are you actually demonstrating to a watching world and even to this high school group that something else is more significant and central to your life than Jesus Christ? Upperclassmen, 11th and 12th graders, even the, youth, youth, even the youth staff, how would you feel if the ninth graders or 10th graders in your small group started imitating you in every aspect of life? How you talk about, uh, how you talk, how you dress, what you think about, what you do, everything. If they spent their days doing exactly what you do, the things you get stressed about are the same things that they get stressed about. The things that, you, that get you excited are the same things that get them excited. If your knowledge of scripture and your attendance in youth group were passed down to them, if your desire to pray, your love for or lack for, lack of love for this youth group and the church is passed down to them, how would you feel about that? Is that ninth or 10th grader going to be a product that you're going to be proud of? May we ourselves long to be friends of the cross and help others grow to be friends of the cross, not enemies of the cross by our example and influence. And third and finally, the third way that we pursue Jesus together is we fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, the problem that the Apostle Paul diagnoses in the enemies of the cross is that their minds were fixed on earthly things. And by contrast, this is what friends of the cross fix their gaze upon. Take a look at verses 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The solution to an earthly mind is to fix our gaze heavenward where Jesus is. And specifically, Paul reminds us that we possess a dual citizenship. That as as as, as much as we possess a citizenship in Torrance, California, we also possess citizenship in heaven. And you know, the word for citizenship in the Greek is interesting because it's better translated as a colony. For the Philippians, when they heard this word, the idea of colony conjured up national patriotism. Colony was a word with with vested significance. Why? It's because Philippi was a Roman colony. Rome obviously was not the first empire in the first century, but it became one of the most dominant empires because of its network and systemic spread of colonies. Now a colony carried way more significance than just a city because a colony of Rome was a microcosm of Rome. You were essentially, if you you were a colony and you lived in a colony, you were essentially little Rome away from Rome. And if you lived in Philippi, which was again a, a Roman colony, it meant that you lived and breathed in Roman society and culture. As a colony and by law, you were on Roman soil even if the colony was in Greece or Egypt or Palestine and not Roman, Rome proper. If you were a Roman citizen living in a colony, you were proud of it. You were covered by Rome. You were treated way better than everyone else. Now here's why this history lesson on Roman colonies is so important. It's because a colony's job was to bring Rome's rule and reign and culture to the city and the region all around the city. To bring Rome's rule its government, authority, culture, and law, and to Romanize the regions that became eventually colonies. And it is into this kind of backdrop that the Apostle Paul reminds the Philippian Christians that while they live in the colony of Philippi, while they live as 
a colony of Rome, their true citizenship is the colony of heaven. Now, what does that mean for you? When the Apostle Paul says that our citizenship, our colony is in heaven, Paul isn't saying that we're just passing through this earth, just waiting until the day we die when we get to go to heaven. That is not the Christian's hope. The hope of the Christian isn't to go to heaven when we die. The hope of the Christian is that heaven will touch down to earth, that heaven will come to earth. We will see Jesus face to face and we will share in Jesus's rule and reign, just as God had always intended. That's why Paul says, from heaven, we await a savior and not to heaven, we await a savior. If you were a Roman citizen living in Philippi, your hope wasn't to go back to Rome. How could you? Philippi was a Roman colony and your job and your hope as a Roman citizen was to bring Roman culture, Roman rule, Roman society to Philippi. The hope wasn't to go back to Rome, but to bring the culture, the values and the hope of Rome to wherever you colonize. And in the same way, Paul is co-opting the language of colonies to remind the Philippians that just as a Roman colony was to bring Rome's rule and reign into a region, as a colony of heaven, as a colony of the true king, as a, as a citizen of this heavenly colony, we are bringing the rule and reign of heaven down to earth. For Paul to say that our citizenship is in heaven doesn't just mean that we are different, but that we are called to represent and permeate the culture of heaven on earth. As followers of Jesus, as citizens of the king, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we are called to live according to a different set of heavenly standards with a different heavenly culture. Not so that we would hole up in our Christian bubbles, but so that the culture of heaven would permeate wherever we are. So that as we become a culture of heaven on earth, we become and permeate a culture of heaven to those around us. Does it make sense? So that when people see Christians, they catch a faint vision of heaven. This is why who we are influenced by and who we influence is so important. It is whether or not people will catch a glimpse in culture of heaven or not. As a, as a citizen of heaven, you were to bring the culture of heaven down to earth. You were to bring the kingdom values of God down to earth, to bring his loving rule and reign to govern your life and to be so transformed by this heavenly culture and reality that it permeates to those around you. What does a culture of heaven look like? Well, it's a, it's a culture of generosity, of, of forgiving one another, showing hospitality, demonstrating grace and mercy, laying our lives down in sacrifice for one another, to love and care for one another. In other words, a culture of heaven is nothing other than a culture of the cross. And isn't this such a fresh breath of air for a culture that we live in right now, a, a, a culture that is very anxious, a culture that is very fractured, a culture that's divided, fearful, impatient, lacking forgiveness. This is a culture of heaven and a culture of the cross. We are to bring the culture of heaven not through a sword, but by way, not, not, by, not by way of power, violence, anger, and mockery with those who disagree with us, but rather we are to bring the culture of heaven according to the way of the cross through the way of the Messiah, Jesus, the way of dying and rising, the way of laying down our rights and our privileges, wearing a face mask, living a Messiah-shaped life, sacrificing and rising in a whole new way. We are bringing the culture of heaven, not with a sword, but with a, a cross, not in the way of Caesar, but in the way of Messiah. And so the question that I need to ask you guys, all of you, is if people were to look at our lives, how we lived our lives, what we cared about, 
Could they, could they say that we are citizens of another kingdom, that we belong to the King, Je to King Jesus? Does your life portray and depict a culture of heaven on earth? You see, the great danger of possessing dual citizenships, of living in Torrance and belonging to heaven, is that it is possible for the culture of earth to seep into our souls, to become influenced by the culture of this world and enticed by the values of this world, to care about what our, our friends care about. The great danger of possessing dual citizenships is that we actually forget our true identity, our true citizenship, our true colony, which is why the Apostle Paul reminds us ultimately not of heaven, but the person from whom we await, the person who resides in heaven and who will descend from heaven with power, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. That is our collective calling and job as a high school ministry, as Kairos High School Ministry. It is to look and fix our gaze on Jesus together. And so how can we, as a high school ministry, pursue Jesus together? And it's by participating in, in Friday night ministry together, by participating with the church. It is to help one another fix our gaze on our Savior by, 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 the, our, by our attendance, to remind each other of our heavenly citizenship. We can't remind each other of our heavenly citizenship if we don't meet together, to forsake any hindrance that would get in the way of Jesus Christ and to follow the example of those who set their hopes on him. That is how this high school ministry, in a nutshell, pursues Jesus together. High schoolers, may we all pursue Jesus by following worthy examples, fleeing from enemies of the cross, and fixing our eyes on Jesus together. Let's pray together. Father, I really do pray that as our high schoolers start their school years afresh, as, as we start a new season of small groups together and a new season of youth ministry together. God, I do pray that our high schoolers would catch a vision, a glimpse of this vision that the Apostle Paul ushers us and exhorts us to see and to live out, that we would be exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to be, citizens of heaven, a colony of heaven on earth, that we would permeate the love of Jesus Christ on this world in such a way that people would catch this vision and likewise want to follow suit, to, to, to lay down their own sin, lay down their own unrighteousness, lay down th themselves and to follow Jesus. And so Father, we do pray that you do a good work even in our small groups. And even as we talk in our small groups about whatever, I do pray that you would knit this high school ministry together. We, Lord, as you know, are including 20 something new ninth graders into the youth ministry. And so Father, I do pray that that you would help us, the, the rest of the, of the high school group, to really welcome them and to uh, really seek to be a good influence, to really invest in the younger generation. And I pray even for our, our, our new ninth graders that they really, really love youth group. They would, they would love coming uh, to, to youth group and they would not be discouraged by, um, by, by, un, by unworthy examples. I do pray that um, our, our ninth graders would really not only enjoy youth group, but really uh, find, or high school group, they really, really find themselves growing more and more in their love for Jesus because of the fact that we all meet together like this. And so God, we thank you and we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.